Thanks, Tony. <clears throat> well, it's always great in this season when our lessons match that of our pastor. We talked about joy, right? What's today? The joy of soul winning. That's, that's just the way the Lord worked that out, right? So if you haven't been to the service today, it's, it's about the joy of the believer. So it's great. It's a great time. So, interesting day. You're here on a very interesting day. So, how many were in the service this morning already? Okay, so you saw this couple that got introduced very briefly. And they're our newest missionaries. And their story is incredible. And you're going to get to hear it because they're going to come in this doors in just a minute. And uh, their names are Ben and Kim Benedict. They're our newest missionaries and their, their uh, ministry is in Nepal. You know where Nepal is? They'll show you, but it's not very close, and it's pretty isolated. And uh, both grew up in Christian households, but took uh, significantly different paths. Um, they're married. They uh, uh, were called to full-time ministry, and then they felt the call to go to a people who haven't heard the gospel. That's what drew them to Nepal. They wanted to be able to share the gospel with a people that had not heard the gospel before. Can you think of anyone else like that, that we've been studying recently? Yeah, Paul. That's Paul planted churches in places he went where the gospel had not been preached. The church in Corinth was a result of Paul going to Corinth and preaching the gospel and people coming, the Lord bringing people to faith and they began a church. And who was the initial one who led that church? Paul, for about 18 months. And uh, we, we know that he, when he left that church, he left that church in the hands of leadership that he had trained. So, when Ben and Kim are able to be here, y'all come on up. There's some similarities between what these folks are doing in their ministry and what we've studied about Paul doing in the Corinthian church. So, after they share, they're going to help me teach the lesson today. And what we're going to do is get to know them even better because as we go through chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, we're going to see how that's applied in their own ministry and some of the similarities that come with those that have come to a people that have not yet heard the gospel. So come on up, you guys. And Kim, let's see if we can't plug that little computer in here and see if it works. We might have an adapter. And Ben, Tony, what did you do with that microphone? Ah. Nope, y'all just pass it back and forth. Okay. All right. See, this lady comes prepared, got her own adapter and everything. All right, so while you guys were getting introduced in the service, I just briefly very briefly, um, 
gave them the slightest overview. So, right. you ready? Well, I want to say it is a privilege and it's a joy for us to be here with you this morning, um, to be um, brought into this church family, to um, to be um, just to be a part of you guys and to have you guys uh, from now on to know us and to us know you and to be um, prayer partners and, and, and to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to other nations and to know that you guys are back here lifting us up in prayer. It really, really means a lot. And it is our joy to be with you and to show the ministry and uh, take a few minutes and say, look what the Lord is doing in Nepal. We've been there 11 years and for us to be the hands and feet on the ground, but to come back and say, we serve an amazing God. Look what our God is doing. It's not us, but it's the Lord. And it's our privilege to do that. We're going to show you a short video uh, this morning that will show a little bit of the region where we're at. And then we'll talk a little bit about our testimony and then a little bit about the ministry. So uh, we really, really, again, thank you for this time to be here with you. It is our joy and a privilege. So we'll just start with the video. Okay, well, I will start then by giving you a typical Nepali greeting. Prabhu Esu Krishko Nam Masabai Janalai Jamasi. Yeah, nobody. <laughs> well, you never know. I thought maybe there might be somebody in here that speaks Nepali. <laughs> what I said to you is I greet you, my brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, because in Nepal, they, uh, well, actually, how many of you have heard of namaste? People, they say, oh, namaste. Well, that's actually a very Hindu greeting. And what it means is the deity in me recognizes the deity in you. So it's actually a very, very pagan greeting. So the Christians in Nepal, when they come to Christ and they come out of Hinduism, they, they don't want to greet one another anymore that way, which is great. So what they do is they say, Jayamasi. Jayamasi means victory in the Messiah. So when they greet one another, they come up instead of like us, we say, hey, how you doing? You know, we shake hands, kind of fist bump something. You know, they come up and they say, victory in the Messiah. What an incredible way to greet one another, to greet your brothers and sisters. So I'm going to greet you again. What I want you to do is I'll say, I'll say my thing. And Jaimasi, put your hands together and you say Jaimasi back. So Prabhu Aishakisko Nam Masabai Janalai Jaimasi. There. Very good. Now, everybody, take your shoes off, come up to the front, sit on the floor, and, and then that'll be good. Now they will be comfortable. So maybe we're ready for a video now. J-A-I-M-A-S-I, J-A-I-M-A-S-I, or I always put just J-M-C, that's kind of for short, J-M-C, that's shortest way to remember it. Well, I'll just go ahead and...
I'll go ahead and just give a little of our testimony. Okay. Well, our name, Kimberly, uh, Ben and Kimberly Benedict, we are from Colorado, actually. And um, we will just take a minute now, and I'll give you, we wanted to introduce ourselves, since this is the first time we're here, just to give a little bit about, so you'll know who we are, where we're from, kind of what our testimonies and our, you want to do the PowerPoint? I would do Sorry. <laughs> okay, so we'll do our testimonies in the PowerPoint. Okay. Yeah, so we'll just, we'll uh, skip the video for right now. We'll give a short testimony um, about who we are, where we're from, so that you know who, you know us, know how the Lord led us to the mission field, and then we'll explain a little bit about the ministry. We'll go through a PowerPoint. So, that's, okay. So, um, I actually, I actually grew up in a Christian home, but I was one of those kids that rebelled against the Lord, and I wanted nothing to do with nothing to do with God. I was a missionary kid. I grew up. As I got older, I rebelled against the Lord, against the church, against everything I've been taught. And when I was actually a, a senior in high school, I ran away from home, joined the Marine Corps, and from that I got into alcohol and drugs spent many, many years, or the, the Marine Corps allowed me to live that life that I wanted, that I desired in rebellion, got into alcohol, became an alcoholic, got out of, got out of the Marine Corps, served four years in the Marine Corps, got out, got heavy into drugs at that point, got into methamphetamines. With that goes, I spent years as a drug addict, and along with that kind of lifestyle, started getting in trouble with the law, I was arrested over 25 times. I don't even know how many times I was arrested. Ended up with 35 felony charges and um, 35 felony charges. The district attorney was going to give me three life sentences plus 100 years. I pled guilty to five, five felonies of manufacturing and trafficking of methamphetamines. Two was given two 20-year sentences, two 10s and a five, and was sent to prison. I was up in Oklahoma at that point. During the time that I was in prison, I'd been in prison about two years, and there was a prison guard that was a Christian. And he, he began to share the gospel with me and tell me the things. I knew the truth because I'd grown up in it, but I had rejected it. As an alcohol, as a drug addict, there's only two places you only see there are two, two ways out. One of the way is death, and the other is prison. I didn't want to go to prison. At that point, I didn't know that there was another way. I didn't know that the truth of Jesus Christ could set you free from that alcohol and that drug, uh, drug addiction. It was that point, the Lord used that part of my life to break me for those, to know or, or to break my heart for people who have no hope, who are lost. Because I was in drug addiction and I knew there was no hope in my life and I didn't see a way out. That's what the Lord used to direct my life so that whether it's alcoholism, drug addiction, or false religions, without hope, we have nothing. And that, that used Lord, the Lord used that part of my life to help me to understand and break my heart and then to give me that burden for the lost. Well, during prison, I've been in prison for about two years, and um, the prison guards started sharing the gospel with me. And first I'd cuss him out and I'd tell him what I thought about him and everything else. But eventually, I, 
I, the Lord was, brought me to that point that one, um, one day in my prison cell, I just knelt down and I surrendered my life to Christ. The Lord worked an absolute miracle in the legal system after that, and I was released having served just less than three years, had my sentence commuted and was set free. I went to Colorado to become, go through a drug and alcohol rehab program, and in that program, it was a Christian program, and in that program, they took the men from that program to a church, Areola Bible Church, where Kimberly's dad was the pastor. So that's how I got there. My story is a little bit differently than Ben's. Obviously, there's, it'd be remarkable if it was the same, right? We'd be quite the unique missionary couple. Um, I also grew up in a Christian home. My dad has been in pastoral ministry since I was two years old. Um, but unlike Ben, I did everything right. <laughs> I, was, I was a good girl. Um, but no, I, I developed a relationship with Jesus Christ at a very young age. I loved the church. I loved the family, my family. Uh, grew up seeing ministry, but I didn't want to be involved in ministry. And it wasn't out of any sort of bitterness or anything like that. It was honestly, as I got into college and I started studying and um, headed down the career path I thought the Lord had for me, it was honestly more my pride that was holding me back from ministry. Because I thought I had a better plan for my life than God could possibly have for my life. And I thought that I had talents and abilities that fit in a certain area, and missions work wasn't that area. And so when I met Ben and we married, a couple of years after we got married, he started talking about that he thought God was calling us into full-time ministry, and I did not feel the same way. <laughs> but over, over a few years, the Lord really showed me that... Um, really there can be no higher calling than to be obedient. And that obedience for some people might mean that career path. And obedience for other people might mean a mission field in a remote area in Nepal. And that's what it meant for us. So that's how we wound up in Nepal. We want to take just a few minutes to talk about what we're doing and where we live. We do live in Nepal, which we want to show a map because not everyone knows where it is. Nepal is a very small country located between China and India. It is its own country. It's not a part of India, which is something that sometimes people think. Um, but it is very small. It's roughly... roughly a hundred, Nepal is roughly 150 miles wide and about 500 miles long. That's, that's the rough size of it. And within that country, so it's, it's about what you'd say half the size of Colorado probably. And in that country it has... <laughs> yeah, about the size of Dallas Fort Worth or something. <laughs> and in that area, there is 124 distinct languages, not just dialects, but distinct languages. So it's a very, very diverse. The bottom part of the country is about 200 feet elevation, and it borders India. It has everything, all of the India jungle things that you would think of. It, it's got snakes and cobras and pythons and man-eating tigers and elephants and humidity and all of those things that that go along with India jungle. It's That's what way it is. And it goes up to the northern part, which is the Mount Everest, the Himalayan mountains, which goes up to 29,000 feet. So it's a very, very diverse country. So in about 150 miles, you're going from 200 feet above sea level to 29,000 feet above sea level. So the entire country is one giant hill. Oh, we can play the video? Okay. okay. <laughs> All, right. Huh? All right. He says skip the video, so. 
So um, Mount, you see those arrows show where Kathmandu, the capital city is, and where Mount Everest is? We live in this region. It's a region called the Karnali region. We'll talk a little bit more about it in a minute. And we specifically live in a community called Joomla. So to get there, you can drive. You can drive from Kathmandu down to the southern border, across the southern border, and then up. But under best case scenarios, that 350-mile trip will take you three 16-hour days in a four-wheel drive vehicle. Um, because the roads are really bad. <laughs> and the last 100 miles will take you about 16 hours in a four-wheel drive Jeep. So it's a very, very rough single-lane road. It's called the Karnali Highway if you ever want to look it up on YouTube. <laughs> so we typically fly to Joomla. We take one flight from Kathmandu to Nepalganj. Uh, it's about a 72-seater plane, fairly normal flight. And then we take a 35-minute flight on a 19-seater plane from the Indian border up to where we live. And those flights aren't scheduled. It's really hard to get one because they very rarely fly. Um, they're pretty rough. The planes are pretty rough. Yeah, it, it's the last flight. It's it's a tight plane. That's the first time we got in it, and it's a little, little small 19-seater. We got in it, and they shut the door, and they tied the door with a seatbelt. So. <laughs> Tied the door shut, and off we went. So, there's a sign-up sheet for a team to come there with us in the back. <laughs> so like we said, we live and work in the Karnali region. It's the least reached, least accessible, and least developed region in the country. It's a place where people live the same way they have for generations. Um, mud and rock homes, very little electricity, if any. Uh, most of the villages just have a few water taps in the village, so there's not running water in homes. There are communal toilets in the villages rather than toilets in the homes. Um, just a, It's a very, very, very hard life in the region where we live. The religion there, it's 80% Hindu, 20% Buddhist in the country. The southern half is a Hindu, top part is Buddhist, and we live right on the dividing line of the two, yeah, the northern northern part. Ten minutes walk way, one way from our Bible school is a Buddhist village. Ten minutes walk the other way is a Hindu. We live at 8,000 feet and the Bible school that we started is at 9,500 feet. So that's, and the, where we live, the religion, the Hindu, is a very, very dark, very oppressive, very demonic, very, very uh, demonic type religion. They say as many as 70% of the people in the villages are witch doctors, which we understand possessed by uh, spirits or demons of one power, authority, or another. So it's a, it's a very dark region. It's a, very, it's a region where there's um, just a lot of darkness in general, and it's a region where there's very, very little hope. There's very little hope in this life because people really live lives. Um, there's not a lot of margin in their lives. They're okay as long as the status quo remains the same, but if anything changes, it's hard to survive. And then it's a very, very dark region because they have no eternal hope. So when you combine those two things, when you have no hope in this life and no hope in the next life, it's just a very, very desperate place. Go through. The primary work that we do is evangelism, pastor training, and church discipleship. In this remote region where we've gone to, there were many, many unreached people groups, many uh, villages that had never heard the name of Jesus Christ before. So the, you can actually stand on hills where on one side of the hill there will be one language spoken and on the other side a different language spoken in the villages. So 
we, in this area, there's unreached people groups. And when people started coming to Christ, we established a pastor or leadership training center to where we want to bring people in. People will come from as many as four to five days walk away. They'll come to the Bible school. And it's a modular training that we do. It's three, uh, three times a year for two weeks at a time. They come and we start with Old Testament survey, New Testament survey, basic Bible doctrine, the fundamentals, and we walk them through it's, it's not nearly what we think of here in the States, that high level of education, because we're starting at the grassroots level, but it's, it's what they need. We come along, we support them, and help them disciple and train the people in their own, own villages. But since they were the first ones, they, we trained and were leading them, teaching them how to lead. Then as people started coming to Christ in the villages, they would send them back to us and to our Bible school where we started a three-month discipleship program to where we then teach and train each one, of, each one of them, these groups of new believers. Because when you come out of Hinduism, Hinduism, there's 330 million gods, they believe. So you're starting at the very, very basic. You start, this is the Bible, this is truth, this is God's word to us. And then who is God, the Holy Spirit, Christ? You're, we're starting at very, very basic level we've been out in this region for seven years so you can say christianity out here is basically seven years old so we're starting at the very very bottom level but that's primarily what our ministry we do some other humanitarian type work but it's always so that we can get entrance into communities to where we share the gospel to then with the purpose of past of doing the pastor training or the training church discipleship so everything we do is geared towards that these are just some pictures that show you a little bit of the context. This is where our campus is located. Um, these are, some, again, some pictures of our campus where we have our trainings. This building is what we use for our Bible school. Um, and these are some pictures of some of the groups that we've had come through. The, the larger picture is our first graduating class of pastors, which was very, very exciting. And then we have a women's conference every fall. There's one day a year that women get off, and they don't have to work. And yeah, literally one day a year where they don't have to work, but it's a Hindu holiday. And the women came to us and said, we have this day and everyone in our village is celebrating and they're celebrating as part of this Hindu holiday. And we can't do that anymore, but we want to do something together as a group. So can we gather together as Christian women? And we said, absolutely. So we started doing a women's conference every fall. And we've also started doing in the fall, a three day youth camp for the youth in the region. And it's just been really exciting to see how this campus has become a hub for the growing Christian community in our region. These are just some more pictures of some of the things that we've done in some villages with water projects or food aid. And that's what has given us the opportunities to go into villages where we wouldn't have any other reason to be there because Nepal is very hostile to Christianity. This is our team, New Hope Canali team. We are the only Westerners out here in this in this entire region. The closest Westerners probably to us would be 16 hours or more away from us. So we are the only ones out here, but we work with Nepali people, with Nepali people. Uh, Pastor Suman and his wife Maya, he's the primary partner that we started New Hope Carnally Ministries with. Uh, Pastor Chandra, 
he is the Bible school principal, and Abishan and Manjila, they are actually came from Kathmandu out to Joomla to serve with us and alongside Pastor Suman, Pastor Chandra, and as translators, as daily helpers, as teachers. So we do this as a team together. We don't do it alone, but the, it's with other Nepalis that we work. Do you want to talk about the village? No, what do you want? How much? <laughs> We just want to close with a story of one village, Gadigal Village. It's a village that we went to for the first time in 2016, and it was an incredibly dark place. And there were idols on every rooftop, every corner, signs of sacrifice everywhere we went. And it was a place where they made it very clear that they didn't want us there. And so even though we felt a huge burden for this village, there weren't a lot of reasons that we could go to them and that we could be able to interact with them. In 2016, there was a fire, and they called and they asked Pastor Suman if the church would be able to help in the aftermath of the fire. So Ben and Pastor Suman did go and were able to help, and that was really the first interaction we were able to have with any people in that village. Do you want to? Yeah. Yeah, so Pastor Suman and I, we went out to this village. It's another two and a half hours walk on past where the Bible school is. So we went out there, like Kimberly said, it was very, very opposed to Christianity, and we weren't welcome there until this point. They asked us, we went out there, we were able to buy food and blankets and help, help this family with some of these necessities just for them to survive that day. And we never really had another chance to go back there for several years. Several times we would request different things. Can we come help? They weren't interested. Nope, we don't want you. We don't want Christianity. We don't want outsiders here. Just very, very closed. Had an opportunity to do a women's health program. They allowed us to come in, do a little bit. The women came. That was the first time we were able to come in again, and that was 2019. And then from then on, after that, well, the world went into COVID, and we weren't, weren't able to go back. So we really had kind of written this village off thinking, we've tried, we've tried to get in here. They don't, they don't want us. And so we were kind of in our own minds, we were thinking, well, it's time to move on, start going somewhere else or something. One day, uh, I was up there actually at New Hope Canali Church, Pastor Suman, the primary pastor there, and I was preaching, and, one, and that afternoon, two men came in and sat down at the back of the church, and I didn't recognize them, didn't know who they were, but it was just interesting any time new people come in. Well, after we got done, we went there, and went back, Pastor Suman and I, we said, well, where are you from, and why are you here? And they said, well, we're from Gadigal which took us back because we're like, from Gadibagal, you're from that village that doesn't want anybody to come. You, you don't want us there. Why are you here? And they said, we want to know more about this God you're talking about. We want to know who it is you're talking about. We said, fantastic. So we went outside there. We sit down, Pastor Suman and I, we begin to share the gospel with them. And when you share the gospel with people in Nepal, like I talked about, you know, the 330 million gods and all this, you have to begin at the beginning. This is God's word. This is his truth. And then you open it up and you say, in the beginning, well, there was one God and he created. We rebelled against him. So the process of sharing the gospel takes two or three, sometimes four hours when you share the gospel with people. And at the end, he, he said, the two guys, one of them said, I want to believe. I'm ready to believe. I, I want to become a Christian right now. And I actually told him no. Because <laughs> we're, we're good missionaries. <laughs> I, I told him no. I said, you're from Gadigal, right? And he said, yes. And I said, you know what happens if you come to Christ. 
I said, if you become a Christian, you're going to be lower than the lowest caste. You're going to be kicked out of your village. Your family's going to disown you. You won't get food or water. I said, you're going to suffer persecution. You're from this village. It's going to cost. I said, there's a cost to follow Christ, and you have to make sure that you're ready to make that decision. This isn't something you do lightly. I said, you need to go back. Come back next week. I said, we'll be, be here. Just come back next week if, if you really mean this. And he said, no, I want to believe right now. And again, I told him, no. I said, no. I said, you just, you, you just don't understand. And he said, yes, I do. He said, I'm ready to believe right now. The other guy said, no, I, I need to go home and, and talk about this. And he said, no, I'm ready to believe. So that, that afternoon, we sat down, and he was the first believer led him to Christ that afternoon. It's actually a picture of the moment that this guy became a believer. So he went back to his village, couldn't stop talking about Christ, kept telling everybody in the village about Christ. Pastor Sumon, our partner, started going over once a week and doing a home fellowship with, with this small group of believers. And every week, more people would come to home fellowship and more people would come to Christ. And by, um, this was the first, the first six believers in Gadigal. By that fall, by September, they asked us if they could start their own church in their own village. They had been walking two and a half hours each way every Saturday to worship with us at Pastor Suman's church. And so we set a day and we all decided to go over to the first, the first Saturday services at New Hope Gadigal in this village. And the first time Ben had gone there for the fire, he and Pastor Suman had prayed. He and Pastor Suman had asked the family after they had given them the food and given them the things that they needed, they had said, you know that we're Christians, you know that we're pastors, can we pray? And the family had said, yes, you can pray. And so they prayed for the family and then standing in the ashes of the fire, they prayed that God would build his church in Gadigal. And that was 2016. And then in September 2021, we were walking over for the first church service in Gadigal. And as we were walking through the village, I kind of heard Ben muttering to himself a little bit. And I asked him what he was talking about. And he said, you're not going to believe this. And all of the pieces of the story that God had been writing finally fell into place. Dev Chanda, the first man who came to Christ in that village, was the man whose home had burned down in 2016. And the home that he had built, which was where the new church was going to be meeting, was in the exact spot that Ben and Suman had prayed and we tell that story just to say that missions is something, churches send out missionaries, people like us, we go, but we're just tools. That, that God is doing something that is always far above and beyond anything any of us could imagine. And that's what we've seen in Nepal, and that's what we've seen in Gadigal. It's now the largest church in our region. And there are over 50 believers in it. And so we just, we just share that story to say God is building his church and how amazing is it that we all get to be part of it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, they've been staying at my house. <clears throat> so I've heard some of these stories. We've become best friends. And I thought I might... I might cut them off and say, yeah, let's just skip that. But I thought, no, you guys might enjoy that. So I also asked them, since we are where we are in 1 Corinthians, um, if they wouldn't mind helping me do my lesson. 
And um, I told them I would just ask them some very difficult theological questions without preparation. <laughs> no, I didn't. I told them everything I'm going to ask them. There are no tricks. But I think you'll be encouraged. I think you probably already have been encouraged, right? What a great couple. So, on your, for your lesson, we know where we are in the outline. This is Paul, who's gone to an area of Corinth where the gospel had ever been preached and started a church. Oh, yeah, kind of like them. And um, initially, he corrected some of their problems that they were having after he'd been gone for a while. And he'd written, they'd written him a letter, and he said, you know, I've had a report that you have some problems. And he went to correct some of those. We saw they were having factions. They were... They were uh, allowing sexual immorality. They were tolerating sin. They, uh, they had lawsuits among one another. And so that was what Paul did initially. He corrected those problems from the report, but then they had questions for him. And some of the questions had to do with marriage, which was from chapter 7. Some of the questions had to do with food being sacrificed to idols, which we probably don't deal with, but... We have had that exact, exact same discussion because they, they sacrifice, part, that is so much part of their religion, they've, they've actually come to us and said, what do we do? This, this food has been sacrificed to idols. How do we respond? See, I told you, somewhere that was happening. <laughs> but um, pretty remarkable. So, as we've been going through the book, our book theme is, For I Determined to Know Nothing Among You Except Jesus Christ and Him Crucified. Our lesson verse for today is from 1 Corinthians 9, 23. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. Remember, the title of our lesson is The Joy of Winning Souls. So um, we kind of see where Paul is, is working this, this message to these people. Remember, he has told them, he started by encouraging, look, the you are God's church, like in Nepali. They're God's church. He says, you have received God's grace. You have been permanently saved by God's power, and you're to trust in God's faithfulness. He, he established that as their foundation so that that would be something that they returned to quickly because in their daily lives, they were bringing many of the things they had dealt with in a pagan culture into the church, and he had to try to help patiently teach that out. Their sinful attitude was pride and selfishness. Well, let's turn now to chapter 9 because Paul's going to use his own personal example. Remember last week, as we talked about in chapter 8, he was exhorting the Corinthians in chapter 8 that those with knowledge, which they were, they had knowledge. He exhorted those with knowledge, though, to be willing to limit what they knew they were, they were free to do out of love for those who would be offended by such a thing as they were doing. And now Paul's going to turn that around now and show how in his own personal life how he applied that biblical principle, okay? So let's read verses 1 through 12 from chapter 9. Paul begins, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife even as the rest of the apostles? 
and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do we only, Barnabas and I, not have the right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it is written, because the plowman ought to, grow, ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hopes of sharing the crop. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? So let's stop there. I guess they feel like you're going to be here a while. <laughs> Maybe the case. We'll try not. All right, so where is Paul going with this? Well, um, our theme is he's reaching unbelievers with the gospel of Jesus Christ to be a priority for Christians. It requires work, sacrifice, flexibility, self-control, and discipline. So first, it's interesting where he begins. He begins by defending his right, his right from the gospel. He begins by giving six reasons why it is that as a worker of, in the gospel, he is entitled, he has a right to receive support, right? And first, he starts with, he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ doing the Lord's work. Now, you got to remember, we're going to find out that he's, he's forfeited that right. So when you do that, there's some people that sit back and go, huh, so we're not supporting him. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think he's really an apostle. If he was really an apostle, you know, we'd be supporting him. Like, who else had been to their church? You remember? Peter. Was Peter an apostle? Yeah, he was one of the original 12. Well, you know what? Paul was an apostle, and he identified himself that way. He says, I was called in as apostle of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 1.1, by the will of God. In 2 Corinthians 11.5, he says, for I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. In Galatians 1, Paul, an apostle not sent from men, nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Why is it that Paul believed he was an apostle? Because he met the requirements of an apostle. The requirements biblically are they're personally called by Jesus. Was Paul personally called by Jesus? Absolutely. We, we saw that last week. And then he was taught by Jesus specifically. We have that throughout Scripture where the Apostle Paul received direct revelation. And then, has he seen Jesus alive after the resurrection? Absolutely. Paul met all the criteria of an apostle. The apostles, uh, the remaining of the group of the apostles recognized that in Paul. And yet, in the Corinthian church, there were some that might have questioned that. He had defended that, and he also defended his right to receive support. The next, he said, it's God's plan is for all people to work and to receive compensation from their labor. 
Go ahead and look now uh, after he went through, you know, does he have the right to eat and drink? Did he have the right to be, to be supported to eat and drink? Yes. He said, do we have the right to take along a believing wife like the Lord's brother and Cephas who did that? Yes, of course he did. He had all of those rights. And then he said, or do only Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working? He had the same rights as the apostle. But his second reason was he was entitled to material support because in the church, it's God's plan for all people to work and receive compensation. Look at verse 6. It says then, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? So there's the example of soldiers who are paid by the government. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Well, farmers eat the grapes harvested from their own vineyard. Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Well, shepherds drink from the milk produced from it. So here's the principle stated negatively. When Paul was in the church at Thessalonica, there were some who understood their freedoms and determined that the Lord was coming soon. Therefore, they were just going to rejoice all the time, and they forgot that they needed to work. And so Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone is not willing to work. Then he is what? He's not to eat either. No, work is what God has planned for men, and they're to get their sustenance, their support from that. Well, he's going to give us a third reason in verse 8. He says, am I not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? His third reason is it's a biblical command that the spiritual worker is to be compensated. And he says that in verse 9, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox when it's threshing. That's from Deuteronomy 5, 4, 25, 4 that says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. Verse 9, it says, God's not concerned about oxen, is he? Well, not in this, this example. Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yeah, God's concerned for his workers. He says, yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher ought to thresh in hope. In hope of what? Of sharing the crops. So the Christian pastor and Christian missionary can expect the same thing. Paul makes it very clear in 1 Timothy 5.17 what this means. He says, The elders who rule well and are considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, for the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Pretty clear, right? And then verse 11 He says, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? He asserts his right to receive support from the Corinthians for his spiritual labor. His fourth reason that he's entitled to accept material support is that the Corinthian church was providing material support for some of the other teachers. In verse 12, he says, if others share the right over you, do we not more? Because... While he was there, he was also the first missionary to bring the gospel to them. He served them for 18 months. So they might have been uh, supplying provision for Apollos and Paul, I mean, and Peter. And so it may be that uh, in this same way, Paul's saying, of course, we uh, should receive that same support. His fifth reason then 
is to accept the material support from the church is because he gives the example now in verse 13 that the Old Testament workers, the priests in the temple, receive their remuneration from the offerings. He says, do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? It's an Old Testament example of the principle from Numbers. His sixth and final reason Paul has accepted material support from the church is because Jesus said so. That's a pretty good reason, don't you think? Look at verse 14. He said, so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. He said that in Matthew 10, 9, where he, uh, he says, do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff. For the worker is worthy of his support. And then again, speaking to the 70 in Luke 10, he says, stay in the house eating and drinking what they give you. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. So the basic principle is the Christian worker who sows the spiritual seed of the gospel has the right to be supported material by those who benefit from the gospel. For, and you know, we apply that in our church, Right? And for these reasons, we pay our, our pastor and our staff, and we also provide financial support for missionaries like Ben and Kim so that they can accomplish things in their ministry. So my question to Ben and Kim is, what does having financial support allow you to do in your ministry in Nepal? Having financial support from churches and individuals back in the States enables us to work in ministry full-time. And so it allows our time in country, rather than having to work a job in country, it allows us to be able to spend that time doing ministry. One of the very clear examples in the region we work in is that over the next couple of years, our goal is to get into some villages where um, no foreigners, Christianity, the name of Christ has never reached. And it's going to take us six to seven days just to walk to those villages. One way. One way. <laughs> we couldn't do that if we had to have jobs. <clears throat> So having the support of churches and individuals gives us the time to do the ministry because it, ministry like this is very, very time-consuming. And the same thing with pastor training and, and church discipleship. When we do pastor training, our module pastor training, Ben is doing that full-time for two straight weeks. If he had to work a job, he wouldn't be able to take off two weeks, three times a year to be able to do that. Our discipleship program runs every day for three months. We have to be able to have the time to do the work that it requires to build up the church in this way, and support is what allows us to have that time. That's good. Oh, by the way, I know you're thinking, boy, Brian really messed up. He gave us all the answers in the blanks. No, I just knew I was going to be going really fast, and I want somebody coming up later and going, you know, we missed this, this, and this, so you have all the answers. <laughs> all right. So... Um, you know, as we went through that first set of verses, what is, what is Paul's goal here? So is Paul chastising the church for not supporting him? Is that what he's doing? Or is he just setting up the church so that they'll pay him in the future? No, that's not what he's doing. Paul is teaching the Corinthians the priority of being able to give up the rights that you are, not, you are to have in order that the gospel might not be hindered. So let's look at uh, the four reasons he gave to that he would forfeit his re right to support. 
Looking at 12b, it said, well, let's just read 12b through 23. He says, nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Then skip down to verse 16. He says, for I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. If I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if it's against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not myself being under the law, so I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow or partaker of it. I hope you kind of picked up that Paul's about winning. Did you get that? So what's he looking to win? But the first reason he gives for intentionally forfeiting his support is to avoid being a hindrance to those hearing the gospel of Christ. Now, I know for a fact that Ben and Kim are not accepting support from the Nepali church. So my question to them is how that's being supported by other churches help you without having required support from the Nepali church. So, so why do we not take money from the Nepali church? Right. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of really good reasons, and I'll just touch on them real quick. The first thing is, is one of the characteristics of all false teachers is they're after money. If we showed up there and we said, oh, well, now you've got to come and start giving us money, we, we in no way want to even be thought of or characterized in any way of false teachers. So to start with, we, we reject that just to avoid any of that. The, one of the other major reasons is because in Nepal, there's a caste system. You have the Brahmins and you have, you know, all of the way down to where considered the untouchables. It's ingrained in their culture. And if we were to go in and say, okay, well, now you have to come and, and give us money, what we're automatically elevating ourselves among the, above the people that we're trying to win for Christ. So instead of saying, no, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, let me show you, let me lead you the way to Christ, we're elevating ourselves, putting ourselves above, and we can't do that as brothers and sisters when we're trying to teach that that's what we're doing. Uh, Another one of the major things is that in Hinduism, a priest is required almost as an intermediary. So they, they come to the Hindu priests, to the Brahmins, and they, they're required to pay them for, for prayer, to perform certain pujas or certain um, ceremonies for them. To, for this kind of thing, they have to come and they have to pay for everything spiritual. Well, if we were to start charging, they would start viewing us as, well, this pastor, he's just like a priest. And the church is just like a temple. 
So th there's that thing. We have to go to the priest. He ha we have to pay him. Well, then he'll say a prayer for us. He'll do uh, whatever it is for us. And what do we try to teach in Christianity? No, you go directly to Christ. We no longer, you don't have to have that priest like in the Old Testament. Go directly to Christ. So how can I then put myself in the way and say, but you have to pay me and then I'll pray for you. Or money always money would teach that and so we want to avoid that so these are some of the major reasons that we would never even think about accepting money from from the nepali church so yeah two thousand years ago there was a guy named paul had the same experience okay so paul said this in second corinthians two seventeen. he said for we are not like the many peddling the word of god but as from sincerity but as from god we speak in the sight of god so he was dealing with what exactly that Ben is talking about. Um, you know, there's those that were peddling the word of God for money, and that would have ruined, it would have been a stumbling block to the Nepali people if that's how they would have come in. Paul says it this way in Titus 1.10. He says, there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced. Why? Because they're upsetting whole families Teaching things they should not teach for what? For the sake of sordid gain. It ruins the testimony of those that are the first onto the field. You need mature believers to be able to support those that are in the ministry. Um, you know, there was somebody that was providing support to Paul. You know that. Listen to this. This is written to the Philippians. And there's some familiar verses in here. Put them into context. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things for him and strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my afflictions. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at my first preaching the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you sent, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Pretty uh, significant to put those verses into context of the way that God was using the Philippian church to help support the Apostle Paul. So that was the first reason, not to be a hindrance to the gospel. The second was to silence the critics by proclaiming the gospel without charge. You know, there were some that, that would criticize Paul because they anticipated he was going to ask for money and he didn't. So it says in verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of for I'm under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. You know, Paul's here remembering what his commission was from Jesus Christ um, when he blinded him and gave him the command to preach the gospel. See, Paul saw himself like Jonah. Remember when Jonah tried to run from God? Did he share the gospel voluntarily? No, he, he found out he was under compulsion after the whale swallowed him. Okay. So what Paul said, though, in Galatians 1.15, he said, But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, I might preach him among Gentiles. 
So Paul realized he was under compulsion, but he does this voluntarily. In verse 17, he says, I have a reward, but if it's against my will, I have a stewardship entrusting me. Paul saw that he had a stewardship entrusted to him, and he was discharging the trust that was committed to him. But in verse 18, he says, well, what is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as to make full use of my right in the gospel. MacArthur says, in that choice, he found great satisfaction and joy. For that choice, he knew he would receive a reward. So MacArthur's looking at this reward he was to receive in eternity. Um, Walford says in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, he said, Paul had shunned material recompense, but he was not without reward or return for his labor. He had the joy of reaping the harvest. That's where the name of my lesson came from. Paul was getting a reward. He was getting a reward with the joy that comes in reaping the harvest. I think you guys probably say some of that. Joy in reaping the harvest. Yeah. Okay, so the third reason was to be an example for others without, of working hard to preach the gospel without charge. I stole this one from 2 Thessalonians 3 because it's just so clear how Paul made himself an example. He says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. And what a great an example the apostle was for all of those that would, would look at his life. The fourth and final reason Paul gives for relinquishing his right is to evangelize as many as possible to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he says in verse 23. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. Paul's heart for the lost. He didn't have a rope presentation or cookie cutter method of evangelism. He tells you what his method was in verse 19. He says, for though I'm free from all men, in other words, he was not under man-made restrictions, I have made myself a slave to all. Literally, he's subjugated his preferences as his Savior did. Matthew 10, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be a slave of all. So that in verse 19, so that I may win more. So he adapted his lifestyle in three ways to be able to effectively communicate the gospel. He adapted to the Jewish customs to create the opportunity to share the gospel. To the Jews, I became as a Jew, so I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, is under the law. These are the Jews. Though Paul knew in verse 20 he wasn't under the law, but he wanted to win those who were under the law. His sacrifice was for a purpose. And then it says, he adapted to the Gentile customs to create the opportunity to share the gospel with the Gentiles. Verse 21, to those who are without the law, as without the law, those not being under the law of God. So he's, he's talking about not living as a Jew, but living as a Gentile. Ate where they ate, same food, same dress, same activities. He's saying though not being without the law. He's not without the moral law, the Ten Commandments, but under the law of Christ, the law of love, so that he might win those who are without the law. And then finally, the third group is 
patient with those who are weak in conscience to create the opportunity to share the gospel. To the weak, I became weak. To those who lacked maturity, and certain things offended him that he might win the weak. Verse 22, I become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. Gain the widest possible audience for the gospel. He changed his lifestyle. He does all things for the sake of the gospel. So, Ben and Kim, how have you adapted the things that you do to the customs in Nepal in order to win souls for Christ? Now, before you answer that, they mentioned that they had some issues during COVID. Well, they also got some information from the states and One of the things they found out in the States is we had a toilet paper shortage. And they said the Nepali people thought that was very funny because the Nepali people don't use toilet paper. Now, I didn't ask if they adapted their ministry in that way, but there were some other things they said. So go ahead. How did y'all adapt your customs in order to win souls? (laughs) There there are a lot of ways that we have adapted (laughs) to the Nepali culture. we, I have adapted the way that I dress. I'm very careful in how I dress so that I am not offending the standards of the Nepali people. We live very similar to the people that we serve with. We eat what we are given. Um, we walk in, we walk just like they do. You talk about walking. Yeah, there's a lot of walking. <laughs> um, we live in an area where there are not very many roads, but there are a few. It would have benefited us a long time ago to purchase a truck to be able to help ferry supplies back and forth, but it would have very much set us apart from the people, so we surrendered that and decided not to do that. Um, we don't eat beef in Nepal. Hindus, Hindus do not eat beef, um, and that is something that's incredibly offensive to Hindus. In fact, one of the biggest insults they can give foreigners is that you're a beef eater. And so we, so we don't eat beef while we're in Nepal. Other foreigners do. A cow is a deity in Hinduism. Although, when you're not in that situation, you're free to eat meat, and you did go to Perry Steakhouse with us, right? <laughs> We did. We were. <laughs> <laughs> he did order steak, yes, yes. And then COVID actually provides one of the best examples, I think. Um, when Nepal went into lockdown in March of 2020, Ben and I were actually separated. I was in the capital when, I was in Kathmandu when that happened. He was in the village, and we were separated for five months during lockdown because we couldn't, the lockdown was so strict that there was no movement. And we made the conscious decision that we weren't going to use any resources we had or influence that we had as foreigners to try and do something that Nepalis couldn't do. And we have seen that change our relationships in our village more than anything else. Part of part of trying to get from where I was at to Kathmandu, it required to get a lot of permission from the embassy and the Nepal government and all kinds of special permission. And they just kept telling me, well, all you have to do is, if you just tell them that you're trying to get back to the States because there is repatriation flights occasionally, just tell them you got to get on one of those flights and they'll give you permission. And I said, well, I, I'm, I'm not. I don't need to go back to the States. I just would like to go to Kathmandu and see my wife. And they're like, well, just lie and tell them that you are... And I'm like, but, but, I'm, but I can't lie because I don't, I'm not trying to go back to the States. We'll just do it anyway. No. So we made that decision. We're not going to use any influence or power or, the, or 
privileges we would have as foreigners to do it. We said when when we are allowed, just as the Nepali people, then we will do what they do. And, and so that, that's that simple thing has opened up relationships and conversations more than anything else because those people saw Ben live through something with them that they didn't see any other foreigners doing. And it's made a significant difference. Yeah, yeah I mean... That's a great illustration of how the Lord uses our trials in ways we never anticipated. And we, when we're faithful through them, right? When we follow God and do what he's called us to do and just faithful through them, the Lord uses that trial to cement Ben into this community where they, they now saw this man stayed with them and um, endured a trial with him. I think that's a great, great example. Well, we're going to finish this. And... Uh, where Paul exhorts the effort to win souls for the gospel. Look at verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I mean, again, I love to get these verses into context because you hear that verse all the time, but they're not talking about winning souls for Christ, and that's what this verse is about, right? It's about winning, but it's about winning souls. So Paul prepares to win by removing any hindrance to the gospel. He's um, said, do you not know those who run in a race all run? So every competitor in the race has a goal, but only one receives the prize. The prize only the winner receives. Run such a way that you may win. The exhortation then is, you need to prepare to win. It's not that there's only one winner in sharing the gospel. It's the preparation that's required to be the one that wins. He's exhorting those to that type of self-control. Everyone who competes in the game exercises self-control in all things. It's to exercise self-control in giving up your rights in order to win souls. Verse 25, then they do it to receive a perishable wreath, a man-made reward for winning the competition. All that training which was significant, they did to get a perishable wreath. And what Paul is saying is, aim higher. Go for the imperishable wreath, right? And you're going to need to exercise self-control in order to win, win souls, to, to receive that divine reward. First Peter said it this way, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved for you in heaven. Paul said, therefore I run in a way not without aim. He's intentional. He has a plan to hit the target. Four times he says to win as many people as possible to Jesus Christ. And then he changes metaphors. He says, I box in such a way, not beating the air. Well, he's not beating the air. What's he beating? Verse 27, I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I will not be disqualified. 
Train your body to accomplish the daily tasks necessary to win the lost. Last question to Ben and Kim is, how do you prepare yourself to evangelize the people in Nepal? I think that, first of all, it's the spiritual disciplines of prayer and studying the Scripture. Because if you're not praying and if you're not studying the Scripture, if you're not growing and maturing yourself, how are you going to disciple people? How can you, how can you get people to lead you if you're not moving yourself? So those things you, you have to be doing as those spiritual disciplines start with. But then also just in a very practical way, disciplining ourselves is in the things in exercise and what we eat. We can't hike around the Himalayas and do the things that we have to do walking everywhere if we're not eating right, if we're not exercising. And that means getting up early in the morning sometimes when we don't want to and exercising, doing those things. It means coming to the United States. We like to joke that you come to the United States and you get off the plane and you breathe the air and you gain 10 pounds. We come here to the States, we travel around, we go, we have to be disciplined in what we eat. And even though we want to eat all the pecan pie and all the cake and all the cookies, well, we have to be disciplined. So there's those just a very practical daily things that we do. So that's that spiritual and the physical. That's great. Y'all come on up here. I, I just want to thank them for being my live illustrations today. And I know you guys are now as encouraged as your elders are in being able to support this, this wonderful couple on the mission field in Nepal. And I hope you'll pray for them. And there is a sign-up sheet. Over at the kiosk, Over there's at the prayer kiosk? cards, brochures, and a sign-up sheet for monthly emails for updates, prayer requests, if you, if you want to receive that. And I'm going to pray for you guys, and then we will be dismissed. So, Father, we are so thankful, Lord. What a, what a joy this morning has been to learn of the ministry that Ben and Kim are a part of, Lord, of the work that you're doing in Nepal. Uh, Father, we understand this is difficult work, and uh, yet, Lord, uh, through your providence, you've allowed our church to come alongside and join with them and participate in this ministry. And Lord, I just pray that for the remaining time they have here in the United States, that, Lord, you... Uh, you help them to be refreshed. Lord, you help them to be an encouragement to people like us in the churches where they visit, that, Lord, uh, you will continue to give them the uh, message that uh, you would have them serve, uh, be able to share. And, Lord, that this time uh, might be one where other people may hear and, and understand the need in areas that, don't have anyone preaching the gospel. And that, Father, you might touch the souls of those that might desire to work as they have chosen to work. Uh, and, Lord, we do pray as they go back to Nepal, uh, Lord, they go back to a people who have remained st stable and steadfast in their faith. And they go back to a people who are hungry for your word. And, Lord, they go back to a people who have not yet heard the gospel that even now you're working in their hearts. And, Lord, they might turn in repentance and faith. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, guys. It was a great morning. Thank you. Thank that was awesome.